When I was a little kid, I remember that twice a year on the Sundays before communion, walking with my mother to a room at the front of the church. And there we joined a circle with all the other women in the congregation. And each one was asked, are you at peace with God and your fellow men? This was the 1950s. I remember this so keenly because I always thought there was maybe a chance I'd witness some drama some, when someone would actually say, well, not really. No one ever did. And I gradually caught on that this practice had lost its life. And the men were doing the same thing in their own room, by the way, in case you were wondering if the women were singled out for this. It seemed like a good impulse to give all members a chance to sort of report to the community of faith uh, about their spiritual health. But it had become a, a faded and kind of sad affair by the time I was tagging along and watching. And yet the idea has stuck with me as something appropriate for a community of faith to ask of its members to give a regular report of their lives and concerns. Businesses issue their annual reports. Uh, the president gives the State of the Union. Nonprofits report to their supporters each year. And so it is in a, a kind of confession and testimony that I bring this morning. In the end, each of us probably has just two or three themes. Talk to us long enough, and we'll eventually be talking about one of our pet subjects or points of view. These tend to be things we care deeply about or are eternally annoyed by. They, they reflect the way we see the world. For example, you see me in this spot, and you figure it's just a matter of time until Mennonite World Conference comes up or in our Sunday school class. Sooner or later, I'll, I'll just happen to mention that I think we'd be a whole lot more faithful if we'd find ways to practice more community. And if you work with me, sooner or later, I'll wind my way to stressing the untold value of doing ordinary things as a family, like eating together. Well, I have another theme that I don't think I talk about quite as widely although my Sunday school class won't be surprised by this. And that's the practice of reading the Bible. I remember when it first hit me that this is something I ought to think more about. I was teaching a Sunday school class of my peers in a Mennonite church where we formerly attended. And let me say clearly, these people are upstanding, faithful, conscientious Christians. I don't remember what the lesson was about, but I asked them something like, have you read the Bible since you were at church last Sunday? None of us had. We were startled. What had happened to us? We who had grown up with daily family devotions and vacation Bible school and Bible quizzing and singing the B-I-B-L-E and rattling off the books of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, at top speed. Sometime later, a good friend of ours was diagnosed with breast cancer. She and her husband were hit hard. 
Merle suggested that we send them a postcard each day, and on it we would write a verse from the Bible. He suggested that he and I take turns, so we'd each go on a search for an appropriate Bible verse every other day. I admit that I, I was a little nervous about this. These friends of ours were in no mood for sweet-sounding verses that had been jerked out of their biblical settings, verses promising that somehow, sometime, everything would be just fine, and meanwhile, here's God's love as some kind of emotional novocaine. Yet, I was ready and curious to see what I would find in the Bible. I mean, what really is in its pages for the desperately frightened for those who are profoundly disappointed, for anyone who lives in some kind of uneasy balance between faith and doubt. I was determined not just to pull verses from the Psalms, but to look everywhere for something truthful to the Bible and something I would want to get if I were my friend who was athletic and fun and good-willed and was now faced with something that might be life-threatening. Before long, Merle and I faced a crisis in our business, and my every other day search through the Bible soon became as much for me, okay, more for me than for my friend. At least I had a practice in place that gave me a tiny threadbare lifeline in those terrible days. Coincidentally, I, I suppose, uh, I was editing a book which we would soon publish, titled A Non-Churchgoer's Guide to the Bible. The author is a guy who lived deeply enough in the non-religious world to understand that most people recognize the Bible as some sort of holy book, but they have no idea about how to find their way in it. They may have even bought a copy at some point, but if they ever picked it up, either out of curiosity or despair, their chances of being engaged were near zero. Michael Gant, the author, gave some hints from his own non-church life about how he had learned to read the Bible, and I, and I quote, parts of it are hard to understand, but all you have to do is learn how to skip those parts until they're not so hard anymore. It used to be that the comics were the only part of the newspaper I understood. A few years later, the sports section made sense. A few more years, and, and I was able to read the whole thing. Well, except the pork belly futures on the financial page, I still don't understand how to read them. But not understanding every page has not kept me from reading and enjoying a newspaper. Likewise, you can read and enjoy the Bible as long as you find parts that hold your interest and reward your attention, end quote. And then he highlighted the utter honesty of the Bible, and I quote again, as national histories go, these writings are quite candid. They make no attempt to whitewash the failings of the nation or its leaders. Fiascos are given the same sort of attention accorded to achievements. This refreshing historical perspective is consistent with the rest of the Bible and with ancient Israel's purpose to call favorable attention not to itself, but to the creator, end quote. Well, I was refreshed 
to read this kind of honest summary of the Bible by someone who himself did not even go to church. I hadn't realized how much screaming and crying and begging goes on in the Bible until I was in a pretty desperate position myself. Themes of betrayal suddenly stood out to me. But I wasn't finding the Bible to be one more pop psychology manual which told me how to think or who to blame so I would feel better. Why do bad things happen? As the author I was working with at the time wrote in his manuscript, no piece of literature, ancient or modern, deals more directly and effectively with this question than the book of Job. Its effectiveness lies in the fact that it doesn't answer the question with a pat answer. Rather, it involves the reader in a wrestling match of thought between a small group of characters who themselves struggle with the question, why do bad things happen? End quote. While I didn't feel smart enough or confident enough to know how to manage things during those dark days, when our friend with breast cancer had come through the first stages of her crisis and we slowed up on the daily postcard routine, I kept reading the Bible each day. I would have felt too vulnerable without it. Some years later, when we experienced a dramatic upswing, I knew by then that I needed steady support and guidance from an utterly reliable source. If I wasn't wise enough or canny enough when things were desperately difficult, I knew I was no better prepared to live faithfully now. Recently, a Mennonite friend from the Netherlands reflected on the nearly total collapse of Christian faith in the church in his country. Not only do just a teeny tiny minority of the Dutch go to church, and most of them are quite elderly, but the stories of Christian faith are largely lost. Most people have no idea who Joseph and Mary are, or Abraham and Isaac, or what is meant by the Ten Commandments, or Easter. They're gone, and quickly. There was a devastating world war, a disheartened, perhaps unprepared church, unanswered questions, unimaginable loss, and the stories of God's presence and love have disappeared, forgotten. I believe that we do bear some responsibility for staying engaged with the Bible if we want to have it shape our lives and perhaps even the world around us. It does not just happen automatically without us. Reading the Bible each day gives me a moral framework to live within. Do I understand everything you read? I read? Are you kidding? Am I always inspired and moved? No. Reading the Bible daily has not proven to be a magical vitamin. But I've discovered that the Bible deals with more sides and depths of the human experience than I had any idea. We heard clean, bracing language from Isaiah this morning, a cry so profoundly felt 
that the person praying takes no time for any polite pleasantries. This bold prayer in Isaiah 64 is from life right against the bone. Tear open the heavens. Come down. Stop hiding. Please consider us, your people. And then a tone of reassurance in 1 Corinthians, a reminder that no matter what, those of us who call on Jesus as our Lord have been enriched in Christ so that both our speech and our knowledge are affected, that we lack no spiritual gifts, and that we will have all the strength we need to be faithful until the very end. Well, okay. But I need stories to help, re- help me remember all of this, to have these promises of God's presence and faithfulness really stick in my mind. Thanks be to God, the Bible is full of stories. And they're the kind that move into your heart and your head if you let them. Take the manna and quail menu, for example, in Exodus 16. Many wild escapades later, thousands of Israelites have arrived safely, well, sort of, in a wilderness without end. Except there's no food. And apparently, no means of growing it or hunting it. You've heard of Mad Hungry? In a private little chat with God, Moses and Aaron learn that God has both the menu planned and its system of delivery. But this will require a lot of trust from everyone. Go pick those white seeds off the ground. Just enough for today. Trust God there will be more tomorrow. And, uh, oh, by the way, tonight watch for the quails. They'll hold you over until tomorrow's manna arrives. That's it. The people don't even recognize the fine, flaky substance on the ground as something edible, let alone nourishing. So, stuck wherever we are, without signposts or roads, or even a sense of direction because we're so blinded by our environment, we dare trust that manna and quails will be back each day. We may not recognize the sustenance we're offered, and it may look meager and unfamiliar, but for the Israelites who wandered a lifetime, they had enough to eat, until they came to a habitable land, apparently in in robust health. I find that when I read the Bible regularly, I am less likely to lose heart, less likely to lose my way, less inclined to give up. And I am more prepared to believe in the hope of another of God's surprising moves, including the gift of a baby of all things, who arrived to make God with us both certain and real.